We are continuing in Twisted Scripture today. We are delighted to have Greg back from vacation. So you guys welcome him on back. Thank you. Good morning, Woodland Hills. And good afternoon, evening, morning, whatever, Podrishners. Good to uh, see you all, or see you all. Podrishners can't see you, but we know they're there. Hey, for the pause thing, it ought to go to that young lady who did an outstanding job last week. Was that not a great sermon? It was totally awesome. Just like the Lego movie. Everything is awesome. Everything was awesome about it. It's fantastic. Fantastic. I appreciate the, the time to get away. It really helps. God has blessed us with uh, some really young, gifted speakers, and it really helps to let go and go off on vacation. Uh, once a year, my family, uh, we save up our pennies, and our kids and our grandkids and others come in, we go to this cabin, and we just have a blast. It's just a highlight of the year, hanging out with grandkids for a week. Of course, you go crazy, but, but it's, a, it's a wonderful kind of crazy. Uh, and you need to take a lot of naps afterwards, but it, it was just, just a blast, just absolute blast. Um, okay, we're continuing the series here. Oh, by the way, uh, don't remind me that the tag on my shoe is still showing, because, see, it's supposed to. It's a look. It, it's a look. See, I, I, most of my clothes I inherit from my son-in-law, who uh, is a manager at the Buckle, and when something's going a little bit out of style, I, I get them if they fit. And so I, I said, well, what about the tag? He goes, it's, that, that's part of the look. So if you don't get this, you're just not cool. Okay, I'm just, I'm cool, you're not, what can I say? I can jiggle it, I can, all right. But if they get too hot up here, I'll take them off. Now we're, uh, we're in a series, we, we looked at Romans 9, how that got twisted, and the book of Job, how that gets twisted, and last week we looked at Jeremiah 29, how that's been twisted. This morning we're going to look at a passage that we believe has gotten twisted, and it has to do with the question, a difficult question of why did God require all those animals to be butchered in the Old Testament? What was up with that? And that, since those animals are supposed to be a prototype of the sacrifice of Christ, why did Jesus need to die for us to be saved? That's kind of the question we're, we're dealing with here now. What I'm going to be saying, will for, for, for some folks, in fact, for all folks, some of this is going to be new, and for some folks, all of it's going to be new. Um, and so you're going to require your thinking caps to be on. This is going to be a teaching time. Sometimes we go more motivation. Other times we go more theological. We like to get into the theology. And so this is going to be one of those teaching theological things. So stay tuned and, 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 and hang in there. You don't have to end up agreeing with me. I always say God gives people the right to be wrong if, if you want to be. But uh, pay attention and, and hang in there with us. The passage is Hebrews 9. And listen to this. It says, Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. That's the Old Testament. For when, and the, the author here, is, it's in a context where he is making the comparison between the, the Old Testament sacrifices and the superiority of the sacrifice in Christ. He says, for when, when, when every commandment had been told to all the people by Moses in accordance with the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the scroll itself with all that stuff and then all the people with all that stuff saying, this is the blood of the covenant. Now remember that phrase, I'll be getting to it in about 15 minutes. The blood of the covenant, it's important. This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, because their tabernacle at this point in time was this big tent that they would gather in, the tent and all the vessels used in worship, sprinkled with blood. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Why? 
Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and pray that it will not return void, but will, return, will, will rather accomplish all that you intend and, 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 and uh, have purpose here. Uh, Lord, I pray that we have attentive minds and open hearts to receive your word. And anything I say that is true, I pray you just give it a divine authority. And if ever I say anything that's false, let it land flat on the ground and be forgotten. And most of all, Lord, I pray that you'd use this message to continually purify our view of you and understand you and to know your character and your purposes and what you've accomplished in Christ and why you required these animals to be sacrificed. Give us understanding and clear away misunderstandings. Tear down strongholds, set captives free. So we can be not just people who fear you, but a people who delight in you and love you and dance before you and dance through life and live out the passion and the beauty of the kingdom. The Jesus-looking kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's kingdom people said, Amen, Amen, Amen. There's no denying that the Old Testament portions of it are full of blood. Um, animals getting sacrificed all over the place. Uh, for, for those of us who are sensitive to animal suffering, some parts of the Old Testament are hard to read. <laughs> you have that happen when you're reading Leviticus? Have you read that book lately? And you just kind of cringe. Um, it, it's just gory. And I, I, it makes me so, so, so glad that I'm a New Testament guy instead of being born in the Old Testament. I don't know if I would have uh, operated well. But just imagine this. Okay, they're inaugurating a new covenant here, so there's blood all over the place. And so it's like, imagine when we first came into this building, for example. We want to consecrate the building. We want to enter into a covenant with God on the basis of what, he, what he's going to do here. So I tell all the people, remember before the service, bring in your cats and dogs and bulls and calves and goats and monkeys and whatever other animal you can find. And, 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 and we're going to have a slaughter fest here because it, it requires blood. We're making a blood covenant here. And then you come in here and so then, you know, we, we, we slaughter the animals, all that blood, and we put it on the walls. That's what they had to do with the tent. Got to purify the walls. With, with some blood of the animals and then I take it and I sprinkle all you guys with some blood I just I get a little spray machine shh, spray you all down with some blood because you need to be purified and these worship instruments all the vessels of worship have to be covered in blood so we need some blood on those drums and we need some blood on the keyboards we need some blood on the guitars and let's put some animal guts on the microphones just to make sure they're covered it's like ah, it's like a Carrie movie or something you know the movie Carrie it's, it's, it's horrific and yet that's what they had to do the question is why why? What was that accomplishing? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Why is that? You know, it's not surprising that people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, who look at all this animal sacrifice, they, they say God is a bloodthirsty monster in the Old Testament. That's their perception of it, and I'll address that a little bit later on. But why must there be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins? Now, the most common answer that's given among conservative Protestants, especially over the last 500 years or so, Probably it's the answer that many of you, maybe most of you were taught, is that the blood is required because God must vent his wrath against sin. God is too holy to have any fellowship with sinners unless the sin is covered by the blood, unless it's atoned for, unless a sacrifice is made. His wrath needs to be appeased. God, God yes, he's love, but he's also justice. And those two must be reconciled. And so to reconcile his justice in order to love, he must pour out his wrath. He must justly condemn sin. And so in this view, the reason why Jesus died was to satisfy God's wrath against sin. Uh, it was to satisfy the justice of God. Jesus stood in our place. He was a substitute 
by being the one on whom God vented his wrath. So now he doesn't have to vent it against us. And that's what allows him to now see us as innocent and to forgive us. It's called the, the penal substitution view of the atonement. Now everyone agrees that Jesus died as our substitute. No question about that. But the question is, did he, is that the way he was our substitute? Penal means penalized. He was punished for our sin by the Father. So the Father could vent his wrath on, on him. Uh, is, is that view correct? Now, we tend to, well, while we totally believe that Jesus died as our substitute, we think that use of this scripture, that explanation for why there must be shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins is, has gotten twisted. And it results in some, some people getting a pretty strongly misconceived view of God who needs to be appeased before he, can be, he, he, he forgives. So I'm going to raise five questions about this perspective. Um, I actually have a lot more questions about it and objections to it than I'm going to give here. I'm under a time constraint. If you want to go deeper in this, there's a book out there called Four Views of the Atonement. And I wrote uh, a, a chapter of that where I critique, give a full critique of this view. But you can also then read the person who defends this view. And you can judge for yourself which one you think has a better argument. And, and uh, I'm sure you'll come up with the conclusion that I do. Okay. So here, here's question number one. How is this view? We always got to start with Jesus. Always start with Jesus. How is this view consistent with Jesus' revelation of God? Among the things that are problematic here is this. In the penal substitution view, you almost have a wedge driven between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father, he's got to. He's like uh, this uh, Inspector Chevere on, on Les Mis. Uh, he, he's got this justice that he cannot let go of. He just cannot let go of it. Uh, it, it, this uh, uh, Jean Valjean must be punished. Um, and he'd rather commit suicide than to ever let justice go. So God the Father has got to judge uh, sin, and that means that we're all condemned to hell. But then Jesus steps in and says, No, I'll take you the place uh, of them. Punish me instead. You almost can get the impression that God is almost a rageaholic. We're so mad. Someone's got to bleed. And he, he doesn't care if it's humans or, or Jesus, but someone's got to bleed. So Jesus says, okay, upon me instead, so they can go free. And so he vents his wrath on, on the son, and then he's satisfied. And now he can love us. He got that off his chest. Well, see, there's a wedge between the father and the son, a gap. It's why you find from the 11th century on, and especially after the Protestant Reformation on, a tendency for some laity and some even theologians to have a love for Jesus, but they're not so sure about the father. Martin Luther loved Jesus, but was terrified of God the Father. Because the Father represents this aspect of God that isn't very Christ-like. You see the good side of God in, in Jesus, but, but there's another side. Calvin called, in the heart of God, there's a horrible decree. This dark side of God that decreed uh, before the foundation of the world that the majority of human beings would go to eternal hell. But Jesus came to save those that weren't part of that horrible decree. So you got this own split personality. But the thing is, the New Testament portrays Jesus as the full revelation of God. He is, Hebrews 1.3, the exact representation of God's very essence, hypostasis in Greek. God is Jesus like all the way down. Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. And he's telling you the truth. He's not just saying, I'm showing you the nice side of the Father, but not the other side. Jesus came to reveal God's love, not to conceal his wrath. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing God. He got it in human form. And that's just a part of God. Paul says the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him in bodily form. And so our job is to do what Paul did. He says, I, I, I don't know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is his definition of God. He defines everything through the lens of the cross. And to trust that God really is like that. 
And that means if we do that, that there can't be any gulf, any gap, any separation, any dichotomy between Jesus and the Father. What Jesus thinks about us is what the Father thinks about us. The way Jesus loves us is the way the Father loves us. His attitude towards us is, is the Father's attitude towards us. He reveals God the Father. That's question number one. Number two is this. And it's not really a question, it's more of an observation. The penal substitution view makes the myth of redemptive violence the centerpiece of history. Now, the myth of redemptive violence, follow this here, is the myth, the lie, that violence can be redemptive. It looks like in the short run, but it never is in the long run. And it's the lie that human beings have believed from time immemorial. And it's what has kept history a ceaseless merry-go-round of cyclical bloodshed. That's human history. It's because we keep on believing this lie. If only we can kill enough of the bad guys, well, then the world will be a better place. If only we kill our opponents, well, then we can rule. And, of course, then the world will be a wonderful place. And we keep on thinking this, so we keep on killing, and it goes round and round and round and round. Well, see, in this view of the atonement, the decisive, the way to solve problems, the ultimate problem that God had to deal with, was, was to kill somebody. Violence is the way to solve problems. And see, if, if you're serving a God for whom violence is the way to solve problems, then you'll be inclined to be a person who will use violence to solve problems. A friend of mine, uh, uh, Tony Barlett, wrote a book. It's a pretty academic book, but it's called Cross Purposes. And what he shows there is that, see, this view, the penal substitution view, it wasn't the view of the early church. It didn't come into being as a theory until about the 11th century. And what, he, what Barlett shows is that it's not a coincidence that at that same time, we find Christian violence beginning to escalate. And it continues nonstop for the next 500 years. It wasn't from the 11th century to the 16th, 17th century. We find Christians killing Muslims, Christians killing heretics, Christians killing Jews, killing witches, and then Christians killing Christians with a 30 years war and the 100 years war and 25% of the population of Europe was exterminated because Christians were killing other Christians. It was going on and on and on. It would have continued to go on except for the secular feudal lords put an end to it because it was hurting the economy. And they had the peace of Westphalia. We're calling a truce. No, Christians are no longer allowed to uh, uh, kill anybody. And so they outlawed the thing. But it's not a coincidence because we always, listen to this, we always become the God that we worship. We always take on, we, we tend to make God in our own image and we tend to take on the image of the God we worship. It's a, it's, it's a, a cyclical thing. And so if, if violence is the ultimate solution to things as evidence on the cross, you'll be inclined to be a people who engage in violence to solve problems. And so it has been, unfortunately, from the 11th century. Now, the, the fact that that contradicts what Jesus tells us on how to solve problems. Uh, he tells us to love our enemies, to never retaliate, to never resist evil with, with, with physical violence. He tells us to pray for those who despitefully use us and to serve those who are enemies. That contradicts this, and that itself is an argument against the penal substitution view. Something else is going on here, folks. Number three, if God's justice must be satisfied, like Inspector Chevert, does God ever really forgive? See, Inspector Chevert at Les Miserables could, could not forgive because justice was the ultimate principle. Well, can God forgive if he can't let go of his justice? Uh, think about this. Uh, forgiveness is about releasing a debt. If someone wrongs you, there's a debt that's occurred because they treated you beneath your worth. And uh, forgiveness is about letting that debt go. This is, that's all it is. But see, if God has to punish somebody, 
for sin, did he ever let any debt go? If you owe me $100 and, I'm gonna, and you can't pay it, so I'm going to throw you in the, 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 in the prison, which I never would do, of course, but this is a story. So if I'm going to throw you in prison, and then someone comes along and says, hey, listen, here's the $100 he owes you, let him go free. You'll be happy for that, but I didn't forgive you. I got my money. So also, if God's got to kill somebody to vent his wrath in order to let us go free, did he ever forgive anything? The answer is no. He got paid. He collected his debt. Forgiveness is impossible if justice is irrevocable. And so here's the thing. The Bible tells us over and over and over again that God forgives. He really forgives. He didn't, we didn't don't get off the hook because somebody else paid the debt. He lets go of debts. That's what forgiveness is. In fact, throughout the Bible, you'll find God forgiving without requiring any sacrifice. You ever notice that? The Ninevites repent. He forgives them. The Israelites repent. He forgives them. He's like the father of the prodigal son. The minute the prodigal son's coming home, man, he's, the father's running towards him, and he doesn't say grovel a little bit or make atonement or appease my wrath or sacrifice a cat. No, he says, I love you, and he hugs them, and then they, they, they throw a celebration. That's what God the Father is like, all right? And that tells you then that something's off, something's off with a theological view that it makes it impossible for God to really forgive. Number four. If God is too holy to be in the presence of sin, that's the argument. That God is too holy to, to, to have anything to do with sin and, and so to embrace sinners unless, something, unless that sin is paid for. But if that's true, how is it that Jesus, who is, we always remember, the exact representation of God's nature, Hebrews 1.3, how is it that he always hangs out with sinners? And he even became our sin, identified with our sin on the cross. If God is so allergic to sin, well, what's up with this? And this is, this is the embodiment of who God is. Jesus attracted the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And he, and he had, went to parties with them. He fellowshiped with them, with them all the time. Now, they stayed clear of the Pharisees because they had the kind of holiness that puts those kind of folks off. That judging kind of holiness. I'm too holy to ever associate with the likes of you. But God is not too holy to ever associate with the likes of you. If Jesus is the clue to what God is like, God is so holy, he loves to associate with the likes of you. He gravitates towards them, and they gravitate towards him. And he, then he enters into full identification with our sin on the cross. And that just tells us that it, it, it's not that God has to kill someone to hang out with sinners. No, he hangs out with them all the time. He dives into their mess, and that's how he, how, how he redeems it. And finally, final question is this. How is it just to punish an innocent person, Jesus, for the guilt of others? Have you ever wondered about that? Uh, which is everyone else. Is guilt the kind of thing that you can just transfer from one person to another? This person did something terrible and they're guilty. But I tell you what, I'm going to take that guilt and put it on you. Uh, how does that work? It, what makes it especially problematic is that the Bible explicitly tells us that God doesn't roll that way. For example, in Ezekiel 18, it says this, that the person who sins is the one who will die because the consequences of sin is death. Not that God will kill them, it's just the natural outcome of sin, unrepented of, is death. A child shall not suffer the iniquity uh, of the, a parent, nor a parent suffer the iniquity of a child. The righteousness of the righteous shall be their own, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be their own. And that's explicitly saying that guilt is not the kind of thing that can be transferred. And so uh, the way that, that, that Christ makes us righteous and what this cross accomplishes, it's not a matter of this mystical transference. It's something else going on. Whatever it means to say that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, I submit to you it's not because God has to vent his wrath on someone or something in order to love and forgive others. Something else is going on. So what else is going on here? What does that phrase mean? Now, I'm going to do two things here. I'm going to first talk about the animal sacrifices. 
And that's going to be kind of the new part here, so pay attention with that. And then I'm going to apply it to the sacrifice of Jesus. And at the end of this, we're going to see, I think, have a different perspective on what it means when the Bible says there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Here's the thing about animal sacrifices that's really interesting. God didn't invent that. Uh, it's not unique to the, New, uh, the Old Testament at all. In fact, it's a staple of human religion going back to the beginning of time. In fact, you find it with, with Cain and Abel, right? They're making sacrifices. Interestingly enough, God never told them to do that. They just start doing it. And we find in history that most religions have practiced something like animal sacrifices and sometimes even child sacrifices. It's a staple of pagan religion. And it's always done to appease the gods. You want to give them what they want because if you don't, then they're going to send droughts and cancer and diseases and famines and earthquakes. So you've you got to keep the gods happy. So pagans have been doing this throughout all of time. And in the ancient Near East, where Israel was, that section of the world, it was especially intense. All of the cultures practiced uh, animal sacrifice, and some of them practiced child sacrifice. Parents, explain it to your kids and your kids in the service here uh, about how barbaric, how barbaric that was, but we'd never do it today. Uh, so... Um, Here's the thing, given that, and then some evidence I'm going to give you here in a moment, given that everybody is part of that culture, and we always, to some degree, conform to the culture, it seems quite certain that the Israelites were already practicing animal sacrifice before God ever told them to do so. In this light, God is like a missionary who comes to the culture, and a missionary coming to a foreign culture just can't turn over everything at once. You've got to accept aspects of the culture that maybe repulse you, but unless you do that, you'll never get a foot in the door to begin to move the culture in a different direction. God is a heavenly missionary to a fallen world. And so he, the, the animal sacrifices we're going to see here now is something that he accepts as an accommodation to the culture. But he does it only for the purpose of moving that culture forward to a time where they're no longer needed, and they'll see that it's not his, really his will. And you can see that uh, the sacrificing of animals in the Old Testament was influenced by the culture, by the way God speaks about it, by the way they speak about it. So, for example, some of the instruction God, God gives makes it clear that the animal sacrificing didn't start with the Old Testament. So we read this, for example, in, in Leviticus 17. It says, the priest is to splash the blood against the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Remember that phrase. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat demons to whom they prostitute themselves. See, it's clear the priests were already sacrificing. This wasn't a new thing to them. Trouble is that they are sacrificing to goat demons. Now, these goat demons are a particular kind of demon that everybody in the ancient Near East believed in, and they believed that they had the face of a goat. And so the Israelites were offering sacrifices like everyone else did, but to the same demons that everyone else was sacrificing to. Though they didn't know there was demons, they thought they were just appeasing the gods. So the Lord here is saying this. Look, it's like it'd be too much to ask them to stop sacrificing altogether. That's just part of their culture. That will take a couple centuries. But if you're going to sacrifice animals, well, then do it to me. Do it out of relationship with me and allegiance to me. So stop doing that and start doing this. And do it in my house, which is how they regarded this tent in the Old Testament. And so this was the heavenly missionary strategy for weaning them off of their relationship with goat demons. All right? You can also see that this practice is influenced by the culture by virtue of the fact that the language they use is identical to the surrounding cultures. We just read they're supposed to sacrifice the animals as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You find this dozens and dozens of times in the Old Testament. The Lord smelled the sacrifice and it was pleasing to him. A sweet-smelling savor. Now here's the thing. That's the way all ancient Near Eastern people talked about these sacrifices. 
way before the Israelites ever started talking that way. We, we, we have ancient literature where we find that the belief was this. When you offer up your animals and sometimes your children, the aroma goes into the air and the gods that are just above the clouds, they smell it. Mm. And then they come down and they eat the animals, or in some cases the children, and they believe that when the fire consumed them, that was the gods consuming them. So they were literally feeding the gods. And it all began with a sweet-smelling aroma up in the air. And you want to feed the gods because if they get hungry and ticked off, well, that's when they start throwing thunderbolts and, and earthquakes and diseases and famines and things like that. So you're appeasing the gods by giving them their food. And it seems pretty clear that the ancient Israelites, that was their, that's the way the culture viewed God. That's the way they initially viewed God. He needs to be appeased with these sacrifices. And he, he enjoys the aroma of these things. Now, that later on becomes a mere metaphor for pleasing God. And you find it in the, in the, in the New Testament. But early on, it's pretty clear that the, the folks literally thought this way about God. So here's what's going on, folks. Remember, read everything in the Bible through the lens of the cross. What happens on the cross? God condescends, comes down, and takes on not only a human form, but he takes on, uh, he bears our sin. And when he bears our sin on the cross, guess what? He takes on the appearance that reflects that sin. On the cross, on the surface, it looks like Jesus is a God-forsaken, uh, guilty criminal. And so the ugliness of the cross is a mirror of our sin. We see ourselves in, that, in the cross. But that reveals what God really is like, the cross. And so as we read the Bible, we know that God is a sin-bearing God. And so when we come upon passages like this, well, we know that this is God, the heavenly missionary, accommodating, bearing their sin, and the minute he does that, he's going to take on the appearance of a God who condones this stuff. He looks like, in these passages, a, a, a rather typical ancient Eastern God who's up in the sky going, mm, I love the smell of those sacrificed goats and chickens. That's just fantastic. Mm, I'm going to go, go down there and have me some. But of course, we know God's not like that. So God's accommodating their fallen perspective. And that's exactly what we should expect God to do since he's decisively revealed in Jesus Christ. So he's... He's weaning people off of their, these, goat de- and these goat demons, and he's, he's accommodating their fallen state out of mercy so he can move them forward. Now, which direction is he moving them? And this is my third point, and it's the strongest proof that this wasn't God's original idea. Um, we find later on, as the, as the Israelites grow and as the prophets start writing, that God explicitly repudiates animal sacrifices. And so we find this in Psalms. He says, you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to uh, give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. Well, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't we just read that he likes the smell of it? What about that sweet aroma stuff? Something's changed here, folks. The sacrifice that is acceptable to God, and now they're ready to get the truth, is a broken spirit, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. This is what God's been after the whole time. You want to do sacrifices? Well, if you need to sacrifice animals, do it. But what I'm interested in is the heart behind the whole thing. And I don't, I'm not pleased with the sacrifice at all in and of itself. And then we read in Isaiah this. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I, I have had enough of burnt offerings of, of, of rams and the fat of fed beasts. Enough of this. I've been tolerating this stuff for three centuries. Let's put a stop to it. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Oh, really? That's not the impression you get early on, but that's what we're getting told now. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? And the Lord's saying, this, this wasn't my idea in the first place. Hey, it wasn't me who told you to do all this stuff. I was just accommodating it. 
Here's the sacrifice that he's looking for. Cease to do evil. He loves that sacrifice. Learn to do good. Tremendous sacrifice. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. What God is saying here, folks, is, to the Israelites is this. It's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. I, uh, I am not the God who needs to be appeased with blood. I don't take delight in your sacrificing the animals. In fact, I love those animals. It bugs me every time you have to do that, but I, I, I accommodate it for a season. The sacrifice I'm interested in is this. Do you have a contrite heart, a broken spirit when you, when you bring that sacrifice? And you really want to know my heart. Now you're ready to hear it. Here's what a sacrifice should look like. Take care of the widow. Take care of the oppressed. Take care of the foreigner. Uh, do justice. Love mercy. Come against iniquity. Stop the evil. That's the kind of sacrifice God has always been looking for. He put up with the animal sacrifices because he's a God who always meets people where they're at in order to move them in a different direction. So God's accommodating this to wean people off of the, the goat-demon uh, relationship and to begin to uh, eventually teach them that he's not a God who needs to be appeased with the shedding of animal blood. And then there's a third thing going on, and that's this. In the meantime, and we find God doing this a number of different ways in the Old Testament, he uses this practice, this very barbaric practice of sacrificing animals, and he gives it a new meaning he infuses it with a new meaning. They were doing it for this reason, but God begins to teach them to do it for a different reason. Now, the reason has nothing to do with God's need to vent his wrath. You don't find a hint of that as the reason why animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament, to appease God's wrath or something. No, the lesson he's teaching with this shed blood is this. Let it be a reminder, a symbolic reminder to you that the consequence of breaking covenant with the God of life results in death. Unless you repent. So it's about the need to repent. Uh, the wages of sin is death. And this is why the Israelites, whenever they entered into a covenant with God or, or, or with one another, the way they would do it is by cutting an animal in two. In fact, the word in Hebrew for making a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. And it's called to cut a covenant because you would cut an animal in two, put one part on this side, one part on that side, and the covenant partners would walk through in between these animal parts and then exchange their vows. And what they were saying is, if I break covenant with you, let it be to me as it is with this animal. The consequence of covenant breaking is death. And that's why it was called the blood of the covenant. As the author of Hebrews says, the blood of the covenant. It teaches that covenant breaking leads to death. And so God is, is using this practice that they were already doing to wean them off their sacrifices to goat demons, to show them eventually that he's not a God who needs to be appeased, but to always be reminding them that the consequence of covenant breaking with him, the God of life, results in death. That's what's going on with the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. And once people get that, there's no need for animal sacrifices, so it comes to an end. Now, how does this relate to, then to the, the sacrifice of Jesus? What's going on in the New Testament? Here, here's the thing. When we come to the New Testament, we learn something. Very important about why breaking covenant with God, why sin results in death. Because we're taught here in a way that was only vaguely revealed in the Old Testament, but now we see it explicitly, that when we break covenant with God, we justly come under the reign of his arch enemy, Satan. Uh, we're either in the kingdom of, darkness, kingdom of God or in the kingdom of darkness, and, and sin separates us from God and therefore puts us under the oppressive, deceptive, destructive reign of Satan and all the other fallen powers. And, and we end up being blinded. We end up being deceived. And that keeps us alienated from God. Uh, we're, 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 we buy into lies. And it starts right in Genesis 3, where Eve buys into a lie about God. 
That's the, that's the captivity that we're in. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that if anyone is blind to the gospel, it's because the God of this age has blinded them. They can't see the truth. So they don't want the truth. So they can't, they, they, they can't receive the truth. We're in bondage here. And this is the problem that God needs to solve with the cross. And, and, and so uh, we find that salvation very frequently in the New Testament is spoken of as being deliverance Deliverance from Satan's captivity. I could give you a hundred verses on this, but I only have time to give you one. Check out uh, Acts 26. Uh, this is the, the gospel in a nutshell. This is the Lord speaking to Paul on the road uh, to Damascus. And the Lord says, Paul, I'm going to rescue you from your people, the Jewish people, and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, listen to this now, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So that, here's another reason, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the good news in a nutshell. Let's break it down. The reason why Paul's preaching the gospel, the good news. The good news is always about centered on the cross. He even defines the gospel as the message of the cross. When you preach this in the power of the Spirit, it has the power to open people's eyes. The, the, the enemy is blind to them, but the, the, the cross... With the help of with the working of the Spirit in our hearts, can open the eyes of people so that they can now begin to see truth. They can see who God really is. They can begin to get free of all the deceptive uh, ideas about God that, that they've been afflicted with under the enemy's oppression. And when their eyes are open, now they have the capacity. God won't force anyone to do this, He's not like that. But they, they have the possibility of choosing to turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. That's what the word repentance means. Metanoia. You can turn around and go in a different direction. Now that you see, now that you see who God really is, now you can turn. And that opens up the door to this beautiful possibility. Now you can finally want and finally receive forgiveness of sins. Uh, and when that happens, now you're incorporated into the, the bride of Christ and the community of all those who are ongoingly being sanctified, being made Christ-like because of our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. That is the church. Folks, this is the gospel in a nutshell. And you see here that the problem that God needs to solve with the cross, with the shedding of blood, isn't the problem of, of, of God trying to reconcile His justice and His love. Like, oh, I'm, I'm just conflicted here. How do I love these people when they're sinners and I'm too holy to touch sin? That's not the problem. It's not the problem of God figuring out how to forgive us. That's never been a problem for God. The problem God's dealing with is that this race of people who are rebels that he inexplicably loves with an incredible passion, they've fallen into bondage. These people who he wants to be as his bride have fallen into bondage to Satan and the powers. So they're deceived and they're blinded. And they think God's a monster and they run the other direction. And they don't want or, or even see the need to ask for forgiveness because they're in darkness. And the whole message of the gospel is about how to go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And God's solution to this problem is the shedding of blood. But it's the shedding of his own blood. As he becomes a human being, and as he goes to the cross and enters into solidarity with our sin, and takes on the consequences of sin that we deserve, and allows uh, fallen humans, at the, working at the behest of the, the, the fallen powers, allows them to inflict him and have violence against him. Well, see, that, that expression of love, it, it is the most perfect expression of love there is, that there ever could be. Because you couldn't cross a farther distance out of love for a, a bride that deserved it less than what God did for us. He crosses an infinite distance to become a human being, and then, as it were, crosses another infinite distance as the all-holy God identifies with our sin. He goes to the furthest extreme he could go for a race of people who could deserve it less. And that perfect love, that perfect self-sacrificial love, 
The way light dispels darkness, just by its nature. When you turn on light, darkness has to flee. That explosion of love is what broke the back of the demonic kingdom, and it's the only thing that could do it. And that perfect revelation of who God is. God is love, John says, and love is defined by the cross. This is the perfect revelation of who God is. And that revelation now has the power to blow apart all of the false views of God that, have, that the enemy has strapped us with and that have afflicted us and prevented us from having a passionate relationship with God. And that perfect expression of love on the cross has the power. It, it, it tells us what our worth is before God. That we have unsurpassable worth because he was willing to pay an unsurpassable price for us. And that has the power, if we allow it and are transformed by the renewing of our mind, to transform all of our thinking about ourselves. And to blow apart all of the, the devil's lies about how you're not worth anything, and you don't matter to anybody, and you're no good for nothing, and you've got no significance. The cross can blow that apart. Everything we need to know about God and everything we need to know about ourselves is found in the cross. That's why Paul says, now I'm starting to preach, that's why Paul says that in Colossians 2, that, that, that the, the cross made a mockery of the d- demonic realm, and that it, it blew it apart. Uh, it completely disempowered Satan and the powers. This is why also, we just saw First John, uh, you, you, find, you find passages like this. He says, whoever sins is a child of the devil. And that seems a little harsh. You see, Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. It's saying the same thing. We put ourselves into that family. We're under, we're under his bondage. But the reason the Son of God has been revealed, he came to earth, and, and the reason he did that was to destroy the works of the devil. And what are the works of the devil? Making human beings his children. God wants them back. They're supposed to be his children, not Satan's. And so the way God does this is not through violence. He, he does it by allowing violence on himself, by shedding his own blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? It's not to protect us from the wrath of God. It's to free us from the wrath of Satan. All right? Only by that means. Only because Jesus' blood was shed. Only because that blood was shed. Could we come out from that oppression and have our eyes open and see who the true God is. Only because of that shed blood. Could we then want to receive forgiveness from God? He's always been offering it. And whenever people turn, he gives it without requiring any kind of thing to be killed. But uh, we, we, as long as we're blind, we don't want that. Without the sacrifice of Jesus, we wouldn't see the true God. We wouldn't want the forgiveness. But because of that, and only because of that shed blood, now we can see that God's a God who never needs to be appeased in order to love. He doesn't need to be appeased and have his wrath satisfied in order to uh, uh, forgive. His justice and his love aren't like competing in him. He is love all the way down, and his justice is an expression of his love. And when it's loving to not enforce justice, he doesn't do it. And that's what forgiveness is all about. Because his essence is love, yes, he's just, perfectly just, but not like Dr. Severa where he's compulsively so. No, when when it's loving to let go of justice in order to forgive, that's what God does. Uh, and, and, and now that we can see who God really is in the cross, we can see that he's a God who's not against us. He's a God who's for us, praise God. A God of, of life who wants to come and give abundant life. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and he's been doing it from the start. But Jesus comes to restore that life, to give us life to the full. Life that is God's life shared in us. And as we can receive forgiveness now, we can be incorporated into Jesus, into Christ, into the bride of Christ. Because of the shed blood, we can see that God freely gives forgiveness, freely loves, freely gives grace, freely restores, freely transforms us, freely changes our destiny. He doesn't require a payment, a payback, a debt release or anything. He just does it, praise God, because that's the kind of God he is. He pours it out. With all the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But it's not God who needs to shed the blood. It's us. 
and the blood we need shed is His, ultimately. They didn't know that in the Old Testament. But now that we, we know the truth, we can look back and see what God was preparing all the way. And the revelation of the whole thing is the opposite of God who says, first got to get my blood before I can love you. Do you see how that can jade a person's picture of God? In fact, if that view is right, then the pagans were right all along. God's, the gods need to be appeased. They get their blood one way or the other, and if we don't give them their blood, well, then, then we're damned. No, no, no. The God revealed in the cross is not at all like that. So there's any blood to be shed, he says, I'll do it. And now do you see this? One more thing. At, at the center of history, there was in the penal substitution view, the central problem-solving act in history was violence as God killed his son. Thereby inclining people who follow that view to think that violence is the solution to problems. But now, this view is called, by the way, it's called Christus Victor. Uh, the Christus Victor view, it's Latin for Christ is victorious. And it was the dominant view of the church up until the 11th century. If you asked anybody for the first thousand years of church history, hey, why did Jesus die? The instinctive answer would have been, because we need to get freed from the devil. God had to, 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 to defeat the devil and, and the fallen powers. Only changed in the 11th century. But in this view, look at instead of violence being the centerpiece for who God is and the centerpiece of history, now what we see illustrated is the truth that the only way to overcome evil is not through violence, but through self-sacrificial love. Uh, it was by his willingness to suffer violence, not inflict it, that he defeated evil. And if people are looking at that as the clue to what God is like and the clue to solve problems, now you'll have a people who... Trust in self-sacrificial love rather than violence to solve problems. And do you know something? Someone taught us that way back when. Yes, Jesus said, never retaliate, never return evil for evil. Never sink to the level of, of the enemy. Rather, you love those enemies, serve those enemies, pray for those enemies. Now we'll be inclined to do exactly what Jesus said we should always be doing. And that's what defines the kingdom. So my question I want to leave with is, is this. In fact, I want to pray here for a moment. I think all of us, to some degree, have a polluted view of God. I don't think any of us see God as purely cross-like all the way down. We've all have residue. But I'm interested in people who, for whom this is a living issue. Um, not just once in a while, but, but you, you tend to live with a suspicion that maybe, maybe there's a part of God that, that, that uh, is not cross-like, that isn't self-sacrificial love. Maybe Greg is uh, giving too much of a fluffy God here. This, uh, you know, the, the hammer's going to fall at some point. Uh, maybe you got this view from, from some teacher or from your own reading of the Bible or whatever, but there's a, you wonder if maybe part of God is this monster God that could predestine. His, he can do whatever he wants, right? We're at his mercy. He could predestine people to hell if he wants to. Maybe, maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe Jesus just does reveal part of God. If you have that affliction, you have trouble trusting that God really is as beautiful as he's revealed to be on the cross, I'd like to pray for you, and so I'd ask you to stand up. This is an issue that, that you wrestle with. Just stand up where you're at. And I'm going to have the rest of us pray for you as well. Thank you. And people starting to stand around the auditorium. Just stand up. Um, if you find that, do you need to appease God? Uh, do, you need, do you find yourself wanting to make deals with God? I'll tell you what, God. I'll do this if you just won't send cancer my way. Or I'll do this if you just heal somebody. If you feel like you've got to earn back that love. And that's your motivation maybe for not doing certain things. Because you're afraid the hammer's going to fall on you if you do. You have to appease God with your good behavior, or you appease God with your right beliefs, or you appease God with obey the right law or whatever. I want you to stand up, because that stronghold needs to be broken. To whatever degree, the beauty of your life will never outrun the beauty of the God that you worship. And so it's so important that we have an altogether beautiful picture of God, and that's defined by the cross. Anybody else want to stand up? Now, I'd like the rest of us, 
as, 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 to look around and just pick out two people that you will pray for. As I'm going to lead us in prayer here, and I just want you to apply that prayer to these people here. Because prayer has the power to break strongholds, and this is a stronghold. Now, we have a responsibility to be transformed by the renewing of our mind as well. But sometimes that's much more difficult if there's a, if there's a power, uh, power behind the stronghold. So that's what we want to be praying against here. So Heavenly Father, pray with me and apply to the two people you picked up. Make sure people in the back are covered. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the power of the Spirit that's present in this place. I can sense it. Sense it all service long. Uh, and Father, right now we, as the body of Christ, in union with you, we want to intercede on behalf of these, these, these folks who have stood up and said, yes, this is an issue that I struggle with. Uh, Father, however the mistrust got there, whether it's through sermons or songs they've heard or, or the, the examples of their parents or however, we come against it in Jesus' name. And we declare that the weapons of our warfare, as Paul said, are not carnal, but they're spiritual. To the tearing down of strongholds, whereby we come against every thought and every imagination that dares to set itself up against the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We don't know anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Father, anything in the minds and hearts of these people that is not consistent with that, that causes suspicion, that causes fear, we bind it in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, drive it out. Drive it out. And help them to see only the beauty of, 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 of your nature as it's exactly represented in Jesus Christ crucified. And, and we stand on the authority of the victory of the cross and come against Satan and, and demonic powers that afflict these people. We declare, you have been defeated once and for all in Jesus' name. And these are kingdom people by, as evidenced by the fact that they are standing up right now. And, and therefore you have no authority any longer in their life. You once did, but you have it no longer because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. They are covered by the blood. And so we bind you and command you to leave off of them and declare that these are, this is kingdom property bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And Holy Spirit, flood them right now. Flood them with a confidence. Drive out all fear. Wherever there's an appeasing God, there'll be fear. Fear that we haven't appeased enough. Father, root out that fear by rooting out that picture of you and replace it with the God who gives freely, loves freely, saves freely, forgives freely, cleanses freely. And Lord, to replace that motivation with the motivation that Paul tells us to have, that they'd be compelled by the love of God as they see your beauty. Uh, They want to live for you. They want to get their lives to look more Christ-like. Let that love be their motivation, the gasoline on which the kingdom uh, engine runs. Hallelujah. Set the captives free, Lord. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Set them free. Set the captives free. Break the chains. Break the yokes. And and free them, Lord, to dance in joy in your kingdom rather than sloth around in fear. Set them free. And now would the rest of us stand as I close with this. As we leave this place, I pray that we be a people who are constantly renewing our minds, uh, putting aside false conceptions. That is the way the enemy keeps us in bondage. It's the lie that he started with in in Genesis. It's the lie he continues with today. Put the lie aside and trust that God is not only as beautiful as he's revealed on the cross, but he's infinitely more beautiful than you could ever conceive of him being. If if, if you get the sense that maybe maybe I'm I'm, uh, thinking of God as too beautiful, perish the thought because the only thing that's possible is for you to fall short of capturing his beauty. You'll never exceed it. And the beauty of our lives will never outrun the beauty of our conception of God. We always become the God that we worship. See the beautiful God and then imitate the beautiful God to put the beautiful God on display to a world that desperately needs the beautiful God. And his name is Jesus Christ. And by his shed blood, we are freed and we are forgiven. And all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.